All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, I have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Sandeep Nayak. Dr. Nayak uh, completed his MD at Brown University and his psychiatry residency at John Hopkins Hospital. He's primarily focused on investigating psychedelics as treatments for psychiatric conditions, particularly addictions and mood disorders. He's also interested in psychedelics effects on belief formation and expanding diversity in psychedelic research. Dr. Nayak also works as a uh, psychiatrist at Addiction Treatment Services at John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center and is clinically experienced in treating disorders of mood, anxiety, eating, as well as addictions and OCD. Dr. Nayak, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to, glad to be here talking about all this stuff. Yeah. So t tell me, this is such an interesting area of research. I want to hear like how... How did you originally even find out about psychedelic research and what, what sort of drove you down this path? Well, so for me, psychedelic research is just a very appealing combination of many things that I've been interested in most of my life, which I didn't actually think could come together. They just, most of my life, they just felt like pretty separate, disparate interests. Um, I first became aware of psychedelics when I read Aldous Huxley's Doors uh, of Perception in middle school. And that kind of made an impact on me because I was very interested in religion. I was raised Hindu and was also exposed to a lot of Buddhist ideas and was surrounded by evangelical Christians. So it kind of forced me to think about the differences between these Basically, I was I was kind of intrigued by mystical religions um, when I learned about um, psychedelics in the context of Aldous Huxley, um, which you know he really introduced a lot of the mystical concepts and language that subsequently began to be applied to psychedelics. Separately, though, I um, you know I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, a clinician. Uh, I was interested in the brain, and I studied Buddhist philosophy in college, and you know these are they just kind of felt like separate things. Um, I went to med school, ended up deciding I wanted to do psychiatry because I was particularly drawn to um, mood disorders and addiction treatments. And you know, as time marched on, here are this field of burgeoning field of psychedelics in which all of these different elements are actually relevant. You have that novel treatment for various psychiatric conditions that, you know, need new treatments. You've got this kind of interesting mystical aspect to these experiences that seems to somehow be beneficial. Um, and yeah, that, it just kind of naturally fit with pretty much everything I'm interested in why I gravitated towards it. And what have been uh, some of the, like the most interesting uh, kind of findings uh, so far with, with the research that you've done with psychedelics or that oh, has come out of your lab? I mean, there's been a, a number of things. Um, I, so I'm, there's clinical research and there's non-clinical research. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm a clinician, so I gravitate more 
towards the clinical stuff. I, I think psych psychedelic therapy has the potential to be of interest to people who don't have any real interest in psychedelics just by virtue of, you know, it potentially being clinically useful. So, you know, the um, early, th there, there is a study that was open label in which people who'd been smoking tobacco tried to quit a number of times, were unsuccessful, um, were given psilocybin and they had pretty remarkable quit rate that was quite durable. I think it was 60% um, at six months. I would have to actually look that up, but it, it was it was way higher than any, um, you know, the next best treatment. Uh, it, it just simply much, it just simply worked much better. So, you know, all of these need to be followed up with kind of more rigorous studies, which is actually being done. But um, I'm excited by the, the prospect that relatively short interventions, you know, psychedelic therapy, you meet with somebody several times over the course of weeks, have one or a number of dosing sessions, then you have integration sessions. But studies with, you know, smoking, depression, not just at our center, but others seem to show that these can produce durable clinical effects that right so, so you mentioned psilocybin and and for those listening so that's uh magic mushrooms uh so psilocybin tell me a little about uh how do, do we know kind of the mechanisms for how that's working with with smoking cessation and can you also just kind of talk a little about how uh what we know about how it's working, uh, how it influences brain activity? Yeah, so mechanisms. Um, th so this is, this is actually a problem within psychiatry generally, um, but we can know exactly what receptor a drug acts on, which we do know for the most part with psilocybin. Um, and then we can know kind of next level up various ways in which a drug say psilocybin can perturb brain activity and then we can take the next level up which is that what do people subjectively feel and we can know all of those things and still have trouble connecting connecting them so kind of at, at the lowest level what you know all classic psychedelics whether it's psilocybin or lsd or mescaline act on the serotonin 2a receptor their agonists of that receptor and that receptor is kind of spread all throughout your cortex um, and that seems to explain why these drugs act similarly they'll act on that receptor and you know i'm not a i'm not really a neuroscientist or a neuroimager so i can kind of parrot to you things that other others have found but one of the um, findings from neuroimaging studies is that um, psychedelics seem to like reduce activity in what's called the default mode network. Um, and this is a network of brain regions that is, I, th I think it was initially discovered in fMRI studies when 
they were just trying to scan people's brain when they're not doing a task. And it turns out that when you're not doing a task, your brain is actually still active. Um, and it's thinking about, you know, past memories, what do I need to make for dinner, a lot of self-related um, narrative stuff. Anyway, so one of the findings seems to be that psilocybin breaks the default mode network. Um, and this, this is kind of parallel to research and meditation as well, um, which seems to show similar neuroimaging findings. Um, so subjectively though, people seem to feel that, you know, if you'll I'll let, let me ramble a bit and I'll try to circle back and connect all these. People, um, psychedelics are being studied for a variety of conditions that are, how could one treatment be useful for depression and for addiction and of various kinds and yada, 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 existential anxiety, cancer. How, how can one treatment be useful for all of these different things? Um, and, and yet we, we do have other treatments that are useful for a lot of things, namely psychotherapy. Psychotherapy um, is very effective in a transdiagnostic way. It's useful for all kinds of stuff. And so I, I kind of, and probably a, a lot of psychedelic researchers sort of think of psychedelics as be acting therapeutically in a, in a manner similar to psychotherapy. In other words, people are having these insight experiences, cathartic experiences, corrective emotional experiences, they're able to see their life in a new way. They're able to see the problems in a new way. They're able to think and act differently. Um, and so it may be that some of those uh, kind of acute effects that you're seeing in neuroimaging studies, for example, um, you know, breaking the default node, mode network, you're, you're kind of scrambling up the normal ways that your brain is processing information, your uh, the me a metaphor is used about getting your brain out of ruts, um, which most psychopathology relates to a kind of mental rut. Depressed people are stuck on negative beliefs, attitudes, worldviews. People with addictions are stuck in certain behavioral patterns, including how they respond to stress, um, OCD, any of this anxiety disorders, these all kind of relate to sort of stuck attitudes, stuck behaviors, stuck whatever. Um, and so it, that that's one way in which you could maybe link up some of the acute effects that are happening to some of the more objective effects. It's not 100% clear that's the case, um, but that's that's one way that it's described. Okay. And you mentioned something earlier about kind of like the sessions that sort of accompany the the sort of psilocybin treatments, right? So there's there's therapy sessions, is that correct, that are sort of going along with the actual administration of the drug? Yeah, so they're not necessarily called therapy. Um, they're there. And this is where like my own thoughts about this might start to diverge from others. But you basically have these preparatory sessions with two kind of kind, warm, 
compassionate people who get to know you quite well over the course of, you know, many hours, not all at once, but um, get to know what kind of problems you're going through, get to know who you are, get to understand a little bit better what kind of changes you're, you're hoping to implement in your life and experience. And you basically end up building like a clinical rapport. So clinical um, professionals can sometimes build relationships with people really quickly that are very intimate and powerful because you know you don't have you don't owe your psychiatrist you don't owe your therapist anything you don't they're there for you if that makes sense um, and so you can be open with them in a way that you maybe can't be with other people in your life um, so anyway, that that is like a that relationship is a very very powerful thing in psychotherapy and any clinical experience, including I think psychedelics. So that's what you're kind of going into as a study participant when you actually get dosed. You have this powerful relationship with these two people that you feel like ideally know you well and that you trust, um, and so. That's the context in which people then have the experience, which can bring up all kinds of stuff. It can bring up ecstatic experiences. It can bring up traumatic memories. It can bring up just a general life review, sort of taking stock and thinking about things differently. Um, and with the encouragement of people that you've come to trust to just sort of accept the experience and go along with what's happening, which um, a lot of times we don't do it life. We, we push things away. We, we kind of try to move around obstacles. We hide from the things that make us uncomfortable. So you have the relationship. You have this profound experience. You're also at the same time kind of practicing new skills, how to accept what's happening. Uh, and then after that, you know, then you talk to these people and sort of process the experience, and kind of leave meeting a bit. So that all I think is quite psychotherapeutic. Right. So the the people I'm curious, the people that are leading these sessions, what uh, what are what what are their instructions as far as how do they sort of help people, you know, kind of cope with whatever's coming up? Are they sort of tr uh, traditional like? psychotherapists or like who, who even are the the people that are leading these not yeah not they're not they have kind of different trainings um you, so you'd be a little maybe be a little surprised it's not like even though i'm calling it psychotherapeutic it's not they're not really doing psychotherapy during the session um they're not try, necessarily trying to guide people towards certain insights or you know steering them they're they're just there um, and they may just be a comforting presence. They may not talk for a long time. They may, um, but, but they're, they're kind of, they're kind of there to help people engage with the experience. Um, and with the idea that, which seems to be the case that the, the preparation and the individual's intention and all of that ends up leading them to, to have, experiences that can be therapeutic. 
So, you know, this is a range of people. It could be a psychiatrist, it could be a social worker, it could be various, um, various types of people. How much, how much does, uh, I guess, like personal, like, I guess what I'm asking is like, do they need to be, does someone need to have like firsthand experience, like taking these psychedelics to sort of be able to be in a position to help someone else kind of to be able to guide them through it? Like it, it seems like it might be difficult if, if they didn't have firsthand experience. Is that, is that accurate? Does that kind of jive with what you've experienced or no? Kind of a thorny question you're raising, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily. Um, I think there are, there, I mean, there's a tension with this is clinical research, right? So you have the clinical aspect and then you have the research aspect. So the, there is a concern with, let's say that you require people to have a psychedelic experience in order to be a guide, that there is a risk that you run of uh, damaging objectivity, I guess you could say, um, or introducing bias potentially. On the flip side, you know, it is potentially helpful to be able to understand the types of experiences that people are having. So it's not anything that's written in stone. It's not like a requirement by any means. It's not, I, I don't think that somebody is necessarily doomed to be a bad guide if they don't have psychedelic experiences. It sort of relates more to the, in the way that one relates interpersonally. And you have to be sort of a sensitive, understanding, kind of empathetic person. Um, and certainly having some experience of altered states, whether it be meditation or holotropic breath work or any number of other things, I think would be beneficial. Um, but not necessarily having, not I don't think necessarily having a psychedelic experience would be required. Okay. What uh, what can you tell me? I I saw some really interesting stuff coming out about psilocybin and uh, end of life anxiety. Is that something that you're familiar with that research? Yeah, that was a study out of here and NYU. Um, that that contributed to some of those findings. And so, can you kind of walk me through as far as like what, uh, how do we know that that, uh, or I guess like what mechanisms is that acting on, um, and how is that sort of helping people come to grips with, like, you know, realizing that they're dying. I mean, that's that's something that seems to not be usually explored. I mean, with any sort of drug or therapy that's it's a really interesting uh study well it's certainly not usually explored with drugs uh, i would kind of push back a bit that it's not explored with therapy um like urban yalom who's a existential psychotherapist is really kind of all about about that um death like the relationship with death i think it's something that in uh, at least American culture is pushed aside very often. But um, 
anyway, so the the study, I'll just speak from, about the Hopkins one. Um, it was recruiting people with depression, anxiety symptoms with um, diseases like cancer, very serious diseases. Um, and didn't necessarily mean that they had an anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder, but they had symptoms. And I guess some of the idea behind this is that people are having symptoms because of the experience they're going through of having a life-threatening illness. Um, and there's a lot of anxiety around that, understandably, including you know, life unlived and the prospect of death, not being able to accept that, not being able to make peace with uh, the time that's left, any number of things. Um, and, and so the, I think you asked about the mechanism, right? I think this is another example where it's difficult to boil, boil it down to something at a lower level than the subjective experience. So people, things that people report after psychedelic experience, you know, things that can happen during the psychedelic experience are um, having just a greater sense of connection with various things, people, the world, um, having greater sense of acceptance of death, feeling, feeling part of, uh, some of these mystical experiences can lead people to feel like they're part of something greater than themselves. Um, and that can be in very mundane ways, like they're more connected to their spouse or their friends or their community or, or even something grander of nature. Um, and this can potentially help explain some of the greater acceptance of death that people may feel after these experiences. Um, there's another part to your question, I think. Um, that was, that was basically the gist of it. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about, um, what, what's your take on microdosing? Cause I know that's, that's something that's been kind of reported in a lot of like, uh, you know, media outlets nowadays, but, uh, I guess one of the main criticisms that I've read about it is there's not really much research that that supports these kind of anecdotal claims yeah um the short answer is i don't really know um i believe there was a study that just came out of maastricht with lsd microdose i haven't read the study so i shouldn't really be talking about this but uh, that i think they used my lsd microdosing for pain um and showed a positive result but i think there's a lot of enthusiasm about microdosing among people who microdose. Um, it's certainly reasonable to think that there's something worth looking into there, but there's just, I don't think we know enough. Okay. About How about just as far as like the, the doses that are used in, in just whatever sort of uh, studies that you guys are doing, how, how are those sort of decided upon? The, like, do you guys try different different dose ranges, or just how is that kind of figured out? Um, so, a lot of this, all of this, all of this happened before I kind of 
joined the field, but um, the the doses that are used are large, like they're pretty high doses. Um, and so one of the more common doses is that's used is 30 milligrams per per 70 kilograms, which I think I think equates to about four to five milligrams, sorry, four to five grams of dried psilocybin convinces mushrooms, um, which is like fairly large. Um, there were studies earlier that, you know, used lo lower dose, like a range of doses to try to um, kind of pin down perhaps an ideal dose. Uh, so it is it is a bit of a, a balance. Um, the kind of the goal of psychedelic therapy is to produce a very powerful, meaningful experience, um, and so the higher the higher dose ranges were sort of arrived upon because they're more likely to produce those experiences. But they're they're certainly not like small doses, right? Well, something that, that really interests me, just the, the whole framework of, of giving like very large doses, I guess, infrequently, because I mean, most, you know, psychiatric drugs that are currently available, uh, you know, to my knowledge in this country, in the kind of Western medical system, it's sort of like a daily, right, you know, your, your doctor prescribes, you know, you to take a pill every morning or something. So it's, it's interesting that there that that these long-term therapeutic effects are able to be seen even with giving a drug so infrequently is that yeah do you find that sort of unique in in the way psychedelics work like that kind of like yes and no um because i don't i think there are actual parallels to other treatments um for example it's obviously very different from say taking an SSRI every day for months to years. Um, but there are other treatments that are sort of intense and time limited and can have enduring effects like ECT, shock therapy. With some exceptions, people aren't getting ECT regularly. Um, but I think I think part of the enduring effect of psychedelic therapy is therapy. I mean, people change the way they live their lives. They change the way that they view things. They, and psychotherapy can also have enduring, um, enduring changes, enduring benefits after people stop doing therapy. So in that way, I don't think it's just the drug. I mean, I don't think you ever really get just the drug with the psychedelic. You get the drug plus the set in the setting and the, every kind of everything else surrounding that. But there is, um, you know, there is an afterglow effect where in the immediate aftermath of the psychedelic experience, people feel like much more positive mood um, and they may, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can still lose the effect. It's still possible to lose a benefit um, from a psychedelic experience. So I think, you know, the studies that are going on currently have a really good 
attention to the preparation and integration, but I suspect if there, that was stripped away, you might not see as many enduring benefits. Okay. So if you, if you, you're say, you know, a psychiatrist, uh, you know, eventually, well, actually, you know, first off, I guess I want to ask you where, as far as like the legal framework of things, when, when do you think psychiatrists are going to start having access to these different psychedelic uh, therapies to use? Um, you know, I'm not sure I'm the best one to ask about this. I think okay. maybe before COVID happened, assuming, I mean, there's phase two trials going on for at least for depression and psilocybin. The next step is phase three, which then after that successful phase three trials, when you can get FDA approval, which is when drugs can actually be used. Um, I don't exactly know what that, if you remove COVID from the picture, I think maybe it would have been, if everything went really well, I think it would have been maybe like five, six years. Okay. So, so when, when that does happen since, so as a, as a psychiatrist, cause you, you work as a psychiatrist at, at John Hopkins. So how, how do you sort of see, how would you implement these different, uh, kind of uh, psychedelic modalities into your, your work ideally? Um, well, it's a good question. So I, again, this is something that I think, like my own views on this might differ from others, Let's take that caveat, but I, I actually see psychedelic therapy potentially being very complementary to conventional psychiatry. Um, rather than like an alternative or a totally different framework. Um, I, I, I don't see it as being, it's obviously very different, but I don't see it as being fundamentally just a different entity. And so I think, I kind of think of it like any other therapy in the sense that you're always gonna have a patient an individual patient who has individual problems and individual preferences. And so some, uh, you might, for example, get a patient who's very depressed, but is very against conventional psychiatric treatments, who may, because of reasons of preference, be more open to psychedelic therapy. That could be a route in which somebody Alternatively, you might get somebody who has no interest or proclivities towards psychedelics at all, who is very depressed and has tried a range of psychiatric treatments, none of which has really given any enduring benefit, who may, for that reason, be interested, um, and kind of everything in between. So I, I don't really see, even if psychedelic therapy lives up to its promise, I don't really see it supplanting traditional psychiatry. Um, I see it as being an additional tool that can be used. And it's a broader tool. I mean, I don't think psychedelic drugs are strictly a, a psychiatric tool. It's used for all kinds of other things. But I, I see it as being like another thing in the armamentarium, if that makes sense. Right. Right. 
I, I wanted to ask you about, um, I guess, you know, in, in using these sort of psychedelic uh, therapies, just before we, we started recording, we were talking a little about um, kind of belief formation. And I'm curious with, with, with like the use of these things, it seems like it could really, you know, sort of shatter people's worldviews or just how they see themselves and other people. Uh, is, is that something that, like, do you think that's always a positive thing or do you think that someone, that, that, that could potentially, like, affect someone in a negative way as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I, I think the answer is unclear. Like, I think it could be both. Um, and so what, I think part of the question you're asking is like, how can you tell if a belief change is harmful? Um, and if, if, if you have a treatment that causes 1% of people to lose their arm, it's pretty easy to say that that's harmful or that causes people to have whatever. But um, what are the difficulties of deciding whether or not a given belief change that may be occasioned by a psychedelic experience is harmful or not is harmful from the perspective of who? So the nature of belief change is that there is someone on one side of the experience who believes one thing someone on the other side of the experience who believes another thing. And those two people might have actually different preferences. Um, and so I think it's a little unclear. There are, um, one, I think we need to just know more about the degree to which beliefs can change and what types of beliefs are likely to change, which requires more research. But two, that should just be something that's included, I think, as part of informed consent once we do actually know more about that. You have like, um, I mean, this is a particular concern with psychedelics because people become open to all kinds of ideas that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise. So Stanislav Grof is this Czech um, psychedelic psychotherapist who has developed like a really kind of intricate system of psychedelic therapy that involves like the literal idea that people's psychopathology, their suffering re relates to their birth experience, birth trauma. And so, I mean, that's, that's you know, a, a bit of a fringe idea, a very fringe idea, we might say. Yet people that he is, uh, guided will have these experiences of recalling their birth or even recalling their conception. And the meaning that is made out of those experiences is therapeutic. So you're sort of, at least I'm kind of caught wondering, so is that, is that good or bad? Um, now, people aren't really having these birth recall experiences in in like the trials in the research settings i don't think but stanislav Grof is like you know subtly or not promoting 
those ideas that can then lead to people having them potentially. So uh, I think at the very least, it is cause for caution to be like not imposing for, for a psychedelic therapist to not impose one's own ideas onto others. Right, right. And and while while you were sort of answering that, it, it also kind of got me thinking as far as like the different, I guess, like sort of uh, types of personalities and how that that might affect, you know, whether if someone's super kind of open to new experiences, right, versus, you know, being very like closed off and very like rigid in their, their belief system, it, it seems like that, that could really play a big part in sort of people's experiences with these things. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, it's a great point. Um, certainly I think like personality probably does have an impact on psychedelic experiences. It makes sense that it could have an impact on susceptibility to change, but also all bets are off. I mean, psychedelics, like pers personality is generally thought to not really change in an enduring way after adulthood. I mean, that's the dogma. Um, yet psychedelics can, psychedelic, like openness, which is a, a facet of personality, increases after, it can increase after psychedelic experiences in an enduring way. So it, Personality going into an experience could have an impact on the experience. I think people with more eroticism are more likely to have challenging experiences, for example. But the personality coming out could also be slightly different. Um, and so you could imagine that somebody who's very, very open-minded might be more open to belief changes. But somebody who's not open-minded, there's more room for belief change, potentially. That's a good so, point. It's, it's sort of hard to say what to conjecture what the effect would be. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about what, uh, are, are there any conditions that you, you definitely would, uh, avoid psychedelics in, in a psychiatric setting? Like I've, I've sort of read about, uh, this sort of psychosis sort of being contraindicated schizophrenia. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like, the short answer is yes, there are, there are conditions that I would, um, so things that are a little unclear, I, I have personally seen, uh, psychedelics cause mania, bipolar mania three times. Um, and the thing that I kind of believe, but can't prove is that I suspect psychedelics are more problematic for people with bipolar disorder. I mean, the the general exclusion criteria is psychosis generally, um, and I think that absolutely makes sense. But I I suspect that psychedelics are particularly problematic for people with bipolar disorder. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily that that should not be done ever. Um, a lot of treatments for depression can cause mania in people with bipolar disorder. So, for example, antidepressants can cause mania. Bright light therapy, can cause, which is antidepressant, 
can cause mania. Sleep deprivation therapy, which is actually uh, in short term, can be like remarkably antidepressant, can cause mania. ECT can cause mania. So psychedelic drugs can cause mania. So I think there are ways for those other conventional depression treatments that obviously if you have somebody with bipolar disorder and is depressed, um, you want to help them and you don't want to hurt them, but there's a, a way in which you can try to balance the risk. And so antidepressants, again, which can cause mania are actually used in bipolar depression, but the idea is that it's usually given along with um, with a mood stabilizer or something that could mitigate the risk. So we know that there is a risk for bipolar disorder with psychedelics. We don't know how big the risk is, and we don't know how much the risk can be mitigated. And so it's like a little, it's, we just need to know more, I think, before proceeding. Um, I don't think there's necessarily any hard and fast rules, but without actually having a clear sense of risk and the degree to which risk can be mitigated, it absolutely makes sense for there not for that. That, that. Those are people that should maybe avoid psychedelics. Right. Have there been any studies like looking at like either the, the synergy or like adverse reactions of say, you know, combining psychedelics with if someone's already on SSRIs or taking other psychiatric drugs, are, are, is there any research looking at, at how that, if there's any contraindications or? or there are, so we're actually about to launch a survey on this, um, but there is one survey from the 90s by Kit Bunsen that looked at the interaction between it's a retrospective survey looking at interaction between psychedelic drugs experiences in people who are taking other, other drugs. And some of the takeaways from that, again, it's like you, you take it with a grain of salt, right? But because for some of these drugs, there wasn't a lot of respondents. But some of the takeaways that one, one thing that seems to be clear that also lines up with anecdote and uh, experience in the clinical trial is that SSRIs can block not just SSRIs actually, but serotonergic antidepressants. So SSRIs, MAOIs, when taken chronically, can block the effect of psychedelics. And this seems to endure even after the SSRI or the antidepressant is stopped. How long it endures, for how many people does it endure, uh, can, can a psychedelic be safely taken on top of an SSRI? These are things that we don't know. There are studies that are, that are um, I think in Switzerland, they're going to be doing a study where they give people an SSRI and then subsequently psilocybin. I think there's maybe a study in Ireland too, but they're going to be dosing those concurrently. So th those are just things that, I mean, they're very simple questions you're asking. They're questions that we don't know the answer to, 
And so there are studies that I think are just going to have to, to, to discover that. But um, harm, I mean, are there drugs that can cause harm? So lithium was one that came up. I mean, there's, again, there's only two people in, the, um, in that survey that think that had lithium with the psychedelic. So that's not a lot of people, but I believe they both had quite bad experiences. It seemed to accentuate negative effects. Uh, and, and like tricyclic antidepressants, I think also seem to accentuate negative effects. Um, and we don't, we don't, I mean, there may be a difference between taking an SSRI chronically, taking an SSRI acutely. Um, we know that those have different effects on your brain, so it may have different effects on taking the psychedelic. In fact, it's probably, I think it's likely that that's true. Um, so our, our survey that we're going to launch hopefully soon is going to is geared towards addressing some of that, not all of it. Uh, there are going to be, there will have to be dosing, actual dosing studies that tease some of that out too. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this though is that this is another instance in which when you have people that are actually doing this by themselves. I mean, you don't, again, if you develop a, a new drug in your lab, you, you can't, go out and mine data from people who are already using it to get a sense of the, the benefits and the harm. So that's one of the ideas, I think. Okay. Um, with, with other, like, like what excites you the most with, with new uh, and kind of future research going forward uh, with psychedelic therapy? Um, like any particular uh, studies that are that we haven't talked about yet, or just other directions of, of research that you think are is going to be really fruitful going forward. I think so. There's kind of the logical, just keep expanding. You know, the same model of trial to other conditions. So I'm excited about, for example seeing whether psychedelic therapy can help opioid addiction, which is a huge problem. Um, and then you can just kind of keep expanding that to different conditions like OCD, anorexia, um, whatever. But at some point, let's say that you've established that psychedelic therapy is good for condition X. Then there are actually a lot of other variables to, to figure out. Um, and this is kind of like down the road not necessarily anything that would be done soon, but like what are the qualities of the setting that might amplify therapeutic benefits? How can that be modified for an individual? Different people might require different things. What are the qualities of the therapeutic style or the, the, the school of the, the philosophy of the therapist um, that might impact how how about like groups? I mean, can this be done as a group endeavor? Um, the model that we have right now for delivering psychedelic therapy in research settings is quite labor intensive, um, using the labor of like very skilled people, which restricts how much it can be used. Um, so looking at things like 
again, nothing that's going to happen soon, but down the road, like different aspects of integrating groups, whether that's group integration or group dosing or whatever, um, I think is of interest. And also, um, are different drugs, are different psychedelic drugs useful for different reasons? I mean, they all have similar effects, but they're different. I mean, some like DMT, 5-MeO-DMT as well, they're ultra short acting. Um, LSD is like quite long, psilocybin is kind of medium, mescaline has its own sort of different flavor of effects. Um, perhaps slightly more pathogenic effects. So those are all kind of things that I think will be interesting as well. Right now, at least in my mind, there's kind of a relatively narrow focus on, um, you know, like at least for the clinical trials, marching them forward uh, the way they are to show, you know, do they work or do they not work in this, in this way? Gotcha. Well, awesome. Dr. Nayak, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, for those listeners who want to find out more, where would you uh, direct them to if they want to find out more about uh, your research, John Hopkins research or psychedelic therapy? Uh, our website, um, what is it? Hopkinspsychedelic.com.org. Right on. Sweet. Um, and for those listeners who enjoyed the show, um, also go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where Roscoe's Wetsuit. Uh, and you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and we're now on Stitcher. Uh, again, Dr. Nyack, thanks so much for your time today. Really enjoyed talking. Likewise. Take care. Awesome.